Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and today I'm lucky to be joined by Dr. Christy Archuleta, a pioneer in the financial therapy space. She has founded or co-founded two financial therapy financial planning programs at Kansas State and the University of Georgia. She's the co-founder of the Financial Therapy Association, as well as the Journal of Financial Therapy, and she's here today to assuage all of our financial anxiety. <laughs> anxiety. Easy for me to say. Welcome to the show, Doc. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It is wonderful to talk to you. And we probably should have waited to do this in person. You're right down the street. But look, I'm glad that you uh, will do it. We'll, we'll we'll chop it up again soon. But I yeah. didn't even think about it. You're like an hour away. I but, know. I didn't think about that either. <laughs> next time. Next so time. it's not often here that that I get to talk to one of uh, a pioneer of a whole new discipline. And you're one of the co-founders of Financial Therapy. And I'm just curious as we begin to hear the origin story of this unique discipline. You know, can you tell us a bit about how you had this idea? Tell us a bit about you and your co-founder and, and how y'all had the idea to start this movement and why you felt it was necessary. Yeah. So financial therapy really started um, just the discussion about it with several different people across the country. And um, there were several people, some of whom you've even had on your, your own podcast, who were part of that conversation um, several years ago. And there was a, a small group of people, um, the Clonses, for example, were there, Rick Kaler, Sonia Britt, Luter, John Crable, Dottie Durbin. Um, and I know I'm leaving some people out, and I don't mean to, <laughs> but we might be here all day if we work on my, my memory. So anyhow, they um, we we came together to talk about like okay, we're interested. There's something going on here. People are doing this work. So some of the people who were here at this meeting were people who were actually practicing. They were thinking oh, we're the only ones that are doing this. They and they weren't connected. They didn't realize there were other people who were doing this. There were people who were studying this topic or who were beginning to study this topic, and so. That's kind of how this this whole like let's maybe develop something that's a little bit more official happened, and that's really how the Financial Therapy Association started. I kind of found my way into this area because I didn't know any better that it wasn't an area. <laughs> <laughs> but I have a background in marriage and family therapy, and um, as I, actually as an undergraduate student, I was going to school. I knew I if I wanted to become a marriage and family therapist, I knew that meant I needed to go to graduate school. So I was on the pathway in my undergraduate work in a program designed to help me move into a master's level marriage and family therapy program. Um, but while I was in that, while I was in my undergrad program, I also was doing a business management minor. And I found that I loved accounting and 
I liked the what I was learning and I really thought, well, maybe I should just change my major. I, I seem to be kind of good at it. I really like it. But I really couldn't see myself sitting in a cubicle. <laughs> and so I kind of struggled with that. And then I also recognized that like any good planner, how long it would take me to graduate. And it was mm -hmm. going to be a little longer than I was wanting to stay in undergrad. <laughs> and so I, um, at around the same time, there was this marriage initiative in the state of Oklahoma at that time. Um, and that's where I went to school and I was born and raised there. And there were these marriage and family therapists that had come to campus to to talk and they talked about how money was one of the biggest issues that couples fight about and I was like whoa wow and i just remember walking back to my house that night thinking this is how i can merge the two i can be a marriage and family therapist and work with money issues and that might really you know kind of satisfy my interest in both of these areas well, then I started looking for graduate programs that, you know, did this and there were none. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I found programs that had financial planning programs and marriage and family therapy programs. And that, those were really where I targeted both master's and, and PhD. And I ended up at Kansas State. And that's where I did both of both my master's and my PhD and then was on faculty in the financial planning program there for 10 years. Wow. So, yeah, so I. I feel like I met some of the right people at the right time. And that's how I got involved and then got to be part of this movement and really be on the very beginning side of that with these people that are experts and really, you know, we hear about them and see them published all the time now. And so really contributing in many ways as thought leaders and as scholars um, to this area of work. So it, when you study the history of different academic movements, I think it's fascinating how many times there's almost this simultaneous discovery. And it seems like you you talked about that a bit here. You've got you know, you and Dr. Luter and the Klontzes and different people all sort of arriving at the same place at the same time. I think that one thing that I and, and perhaps others struggle with is how to sort of define the lines of demarcation between financial planning, financial therapy, and therapy. Mm -hmm. You know, where's the, where's sort of the bright line? And, and, is this the kind of thing where a financial advisor who, you know, many of the folks that listen to this show are advisors, should financial advisors be looking to make a referral to a financial therapist for, for counseling? Or is this primarily an academic discipline uh, that, that sort of disseminates information to, to more traditional therapists? How, how do you think about those lines? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So, there are definitely lines. So we we like to talk about how there's therapy in terms of how how you and I were trained to we diet, we assess, we diagnose, and we treat. And then there's also being therapeutic, which is really just being human with someone else, <laughs> being kind and non-judgmental and um, caring and um, courageous. And so we can take a lot of therapeutic techniques and borrow those from mental health. And we can utilize those in with our financial planning clients and our financial counseling clients without diagnosing 
assessing, diagnosing, and treating those disorders that mental health therapists are specifically trained to deal with. So I talk about this a lot with with planners, especially planners who are interested in really that emotional and the human side of uh, of things and and where is that line and how how do you know if you're 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 crossing that and so one of the things that talk about is what are you trained to do what what is your training and then what do you feel comfortable in doing and if you feel like if you feel uncomfortable doing something that means that you're probably pushing your scope of practice and so that's really what we want to define is what is your scope of practice and what is it that you're you're able to do because you can certainly utilize tools and techniques, aka interventions. <laughs> the, mm-hmm. inter, the word interventions I find scares players. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, but really, that's what it is. It's tools and techniques that are um, intervening into helping people change behavior to really move and meet their goals. And as financial planners. That's what we're doing. We are helping people meet their goals and meeting goals really encompasses some sort of change that has to happen. If we really think about change very broadly, we can think about change in terms of doing something very small. We can think about changes, making some big changes, doing something really different or having to maintain doing more of something that they're they're already doing. And so very rarely can you just like, just stay static and meet a goal, no matter how you're how you're looking at it. And so the clients having to do something. And so if we think of ourselves as change agents, then we have to utilize tools that help us become those change agents. And we want to utilize those tools and techniques that are useful, that have been found effective. Um, but we're using them to help create those those financial changes. Um, and that really encompasses financial behavior, encompasses relationships, emotions, thinking, um, or thought processes, and then how all of those are interplaying together. so i'll I'll speak at the risk of at the risk of angering some of my colleagues. I'll speak for psychologists and mental health professionals broadly and say that I'm not sure there's another group of people that's that out of touch with money as uh, mental health professionals. I mean, they went, you know, you you don't become a psychologist or a mental health professional, A, because you love money uh, or, or B, because you necessarily have, have a very deep understanding of it. So it's it's definitely clear to me where a mental health professional would be in over their head and and want to make uh, want to make a referral to a financial uh, therapist. What about on the financial planner, financial advisor side? When might what what's a concrete example of a of a presenting concern that's perhaps out of the scope of their practice, but not yet so fully mental health focused that it would be sort of the bailiwick of a, of a psychologist? Yeah. So if I understand your question correctly, I think there's several things you might say, okay, let's what's what's beyond my scope? What what are where are we not doing? And I think when your clients are not making any progress, maybe there's so much conflict within the family that that could be an issue um, that is hindering them making progress. And so then you might want to 
um, refer to a mental health expert or a relationship expert, like a marriage and family therapist or a psychologist, you know, when there is a lot of anxiety or stress happening that's getting in the way of the client, maybe even following through or following up on something, that might be um, saying, oh, maybe we need to, to ask someone else or call in or refer or collaborate, whatever that looks like. There's several different models that has that have been written about in terms of how, how we can effectively work with another professional from a, a different discipline. But depending on how that works. But sometimes that actually could be like, okay, maybe there, maybe we're not going at the pace that the client needs to go at. So we need to really reflect on what it is that we're doing as planners yeah. in order to help our clients make that, that progress forward. So how are we contributing as the professional to the anxiety and stress that the client might be experiencing? Problematic behaviors like for whatever reason, this has come up a lot this week, but overspending. Mm. Um, and so just overspending, like spending either outside of the budget or um, just not having a real clear way in which you're organizing your cash flow. And so you just spend, 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 um, or just spending way too much, maybe on big ticket items or um, to connect or be within a certain social circle. Yeah, and so how do you how do you address those issues? That can be difficult as well. A couple of other things that have also come up along kind of with stress and anxiety, and I think this has really been exacerbated by COVID, mm-hmm. um, is depression. Yeah, and that I, that social isolation, that um, and maybe even social comparison. There's a lot of contributing factors, of course, but just so those depressive symptoms and and being watchful and mindful um, of those issues that are going on. And as a financial professional, I think sometimes it's easy to say, well, I don't deal with that kind of stuff. But as the financial professional, you might be the first person who recognizes some of these issues, just like you might be the first person who recognizes some sort of cognitive decline in, a, in an aging person or something like that, you might be the first person that the client has confided in, or you have observed something that causes you concern. And that's for a number of reasons. One of them is that they feel like they can be vulnerable with you. They're sharing one of the most intimate parts of their life, which is their financial situation. And so that's a really big component of their life they're, that they're sharing with you that they've really never talked about with anyone else. Because in this society, we don't really talk about money. We might show it, <laughs> but we don't talk about it. And so being that trusted person that they have in their life, you might learn some things that you you weren't ready to hear, maybe didn't want to know, don't know how to handle, um, but they might fall in one of those categories that that really raise some some concerns. I always think about this accountant that I used to work for a long, long time ago. This was before I even ever went to grad school. But I remember him coming out of his office one day saying, I don't understand why people tell me this stuff. I don't <laughs> want to know. And I think a couple had just left. 
And you know, I don't want to know this stuff. They tell me way too much. And what am I supposed to do about it? And it was like, well, they probably don't talk about this stuff with anyone else but you. And so you are their trusted person that they go to. So of course, they're going to tell you their whole family story and all of the strife that they're experiencing because they're sharing the thing that they've been told their whole lives not to talk to anyone about. And that's their financial situation. Well, I, th- I think you make a brilliant point here because the way that mental health is stigmatized, I can promise you that there are people who would go see a financial professional way before they would ever, um, you know, uh, go see a therapist. And, you know, I, I say often that a quarter of all visits to a general practitioner uh, r- result in a referral to a mental health practitioner just because the linkage between the mind and body is so direct and there's so much overlap there. I mean, the same could be said about money. Money touches every part of our lives. It's very consistently the number one stressor in the lives of people all over the world. WebMD had a study out this month that says 84% of Americans are extremely stressed and the number one stressor was inflation. And so, you know, this we are in a position of power, but also a position of responsibility as financial professionals. And I think a lot of times we are that first line of defense and we need to read the work of folks like you and your, and your, uh, your colleagues to understand when to, when we're outside, uh, when we're out of our depth and, and when to make those referrals. So, you know, speaking of your work, I ask you, I ask you this question, you know, what, what work are you most proud of? Right. And I, I, I ask you what you were most proud of. And you said, oh, geez, because you're not, you're not a very proud person. And even though you've made this enormous contribution to the literature, I'm not sure you're the kind of person to sort of beat your own chest. So you were kind enough with some arm twisting to send me, uh, to send me three wonderful articles uh, that you were proud of. And I want to talk about those for the next little bit. The first of these has to do with solution-focused therapy. Now, solution-focused therapy is something that enjoys a lot of cachet and respect within psychological circles. It's very intuitive and sort of practical when you explain it, but I don't think it's something that the average listener will will know about. So can you give us just a high-level overview of what solution-focused therapy is and then how you found it was effective in your particular study? Yeah. So... Excuse me. So yeah, so solution focused therapy. I'll preface this with that I love to teach solution focused because I think it's one of the easier mental health approaches to teach to others. Um, I teach our students who work in the Aspire Clinic here at the University of Georgia how to utilize this approach when they're working with clients. And they get to work with real life clients. And so they actually get to implement this approach. And I, I've taught students at Kansas State when I was there this approach, and I love talking to financial professionals because there you can really take some of the tools from this approach and and easily implement them. Um, but I love the whole approach, and I love the the premise behind it. And like you mentioned, it's a very practical approach. It was it's actually developed from um, addictions center um, or in an addiction center by Insu Kimberg and Steve DeShazer many decades ago in the early 80s. And the way it was developed was by observing how the professionals, the mental health professionals were working with their clients and what made a difference in 
those clients being successful in their goals. And so one of those things that that I particularly think is helpful and different than many approaches is that it's a very strength-based approach. It's not looking at deficit, um, but it's looking at strengths. And so the way, even the way in which questions are worded are from a strengths-based approach. And so we, we'll talk just a minute about uh, a couple of the tools that, that make it look like that. It has some very practical principles and assumptions. I won't go through all of them, but some of my favorite ones are, if it doesn't work, then do something differently. I think as someone who works in academia, I see us like we we love to hit our heads against the wall <laughs> and try, keep doing the same thing over and over again. Um, but let's stop that and let's do something different. And I think our clients are very similar in, in mm -hmm. many cases. It's just hard to get out of that rut sometimes. Um, if it works, do more of it. So we're really going to emphasize like, hey, what are those small things that are working? And let's try to implement more of them um, and do more of that for your own, own benefit. And so those are a few few of the principles and assumptions that that drive this approach. There are a couple of techniques that you may have have heard of, your listeners may have heard of, maybe on um, previous podcasts of yours. Um, but one of the hallmark tools is the miracle question. Mm. And the miracle question is really when it's asked right, it takes like a whole hour to do this, if not more. Um, and it's kind of you get into this hypnotic state. You're not doing hypnosis. There's no hypnosis involved, but it, I say hypnotic, like more like relaxed stage. And um, people who are really good at that, you know, ask the question real slow and in a calm voice and um, have a real rhythm in, in which they ask it. And they really set up the person to visualize themselves going to bed and then having this miracle or shift that happens in the night. And so the shift that happens in the night can be, you know, you can specifically word it to be around their financial situation, or you can just ask it like um, Steve DeShazer and Nancy Kimberg did and say a miracle occurred in the night. Um, and then when you wake up, how would you know things are different? Mm -hmm. And so it's all about like recognizing, like, how are you different? What are you going to be doing differently? Um, how are others around you going to recognize in you that this shift has occurred? And so we get into things like, well, I would feel relaxed. I would feel less stressed. I would feel present with my family. Um, I would feel less distracted. Um, I might be excited or hopeful. And so then we get to start building what that looks like for that person and what that means. And so they're really taking ownership of what almost like a dream would be if, if something were, were different. And so we did use that question in, a, in an early study that we did um, as part of, uh, of the approach. But then in a more recent study, we actually, or a recently published study, it actually took a long time to collect all of the data. <laughs> Know how that goes. Yes, exactly. And it was it was fun because actually from um, cohorts of PhD students at Kansas State and mm. a class that I was teaching. And so it was really cool to be able to watch the students do this and do uh, keep fidelity to the the spirit of the asking the questions. Um, but in that approach, we actually asked what we call the best hopes question 
which is really like, how would you know if your best hopes have been realized? Or what are your best hopes for your financial future? I'm asking it backwards, sorry. What are your best hopes for your financial future? And then you follow that up with, how will you know those best hopes are realized? And again, then you're asking other follow-up questions to kind of probe that information. And so that particular study was really designed to help clients develop goals. So, you know, a lot of times we ask, well, what are your financial goals? <laughs> and I don't know, maybe clients are different that go to some of your listeners, but a lot of times when they, when I've worked with them or when they come to the Aspire Clinic, um, they're like, I don't know what my goals are, <laughs> or my goals are to retire by the time I'm 60. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> what does that really mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and and how are you going to know besides the fact that you're 60 that you've re- you can retire and that you're going to be doing the things that you you really want to be doing? So those are that's kind of the briefer version that that was borrowed from um, the they're called the Brief Group in the UK and they developed a, a just a short they designed it to be a shorter method because of how they had to work with clients and they w- went into schools and asked these questions and they sometimes got one shot to work with this the students and their parents. And so they just needed a briefer way in which they could utilize that solution-focused approach. And so that was one way that they did it. But I think it it fits really well in financial planning as well because mm-hmm. it is very practical and it's a, it's a different way of asking questions. Um, but it's getting at that same like, okay, let's talk about what your financial goals here. Well, you know, how are, how's this going to be most useful to you but getting them to really think about what, what's happening for them. Another tool or technique that is very hallmark to solution focus are scaling questions. And scaling questions can be very, very thought-provoking. So on a scale from zero to 10, um, you know, zero being I'm not doing anything at all, 10 being I, I've accomplished this. Um, where are you? Or you can ask a scaling. I love scaling questions because you can ask it about anything. Like, mm-hmm. how are you feeling? Or, you know, how what kind of progress are you making? Or how confident are you about doing this this week? And so that's a, it's a great tool that that's really where one of the strength-based assumptions comes in that you're asking, okay, you might say, oh, I'm a I'm a four on my ability to to save every month so that I can reach my goal. Okay, well four might not seem so great, but why are you a four and not a three and a half? Right. Or why are you a four not a three? Because you want to capture what is it that they're already doing right. that get, is getting them a little bit closer, and then you can utilize that. Like okay, so. How can we take the fact that you're able to, you know, earmark this amount, you know, what else do you need to be doing? And and why is that so helpful? And why is that so useful? And that's, that's amazing that you're able to do that. So especially when it comes to finances, people don't, they don't know what they don't know. So they don't mm-hmm. come in with a lot of financial knowledge, typically. Um, that's why they hired you (laughs) to be their financial professional. Because if they knew what they were doing, they could do it themselves. But they've come to you because they might not have very much financial knowledge. And if they are financially knowledgeable, they're probably not very confident in their knowledge 
or they might be overly confident Mm -hmm. in their knowledge and then they really don't have that much knowledge. So um, there's a couple of different ways in which people come or why they come in into the into the process. So this is very helpful in helping people really like, oh, I am doing something that maybe I haven't recognized that I'm doing. And it also takes a relational perspective. Like, so how, you know, if your friends, what would your friends say? How would your friends say that you're doing? And so sometimes clients will say, well, I don't talk about it with my friends. So they have no idea. Well, it's not about your your friends or your family knowing anything because we live in a culture that we don't talk about it with anyone else, right? Yeah. So, so it's not about them knowing about it. It's like, what would they say about what they think? You know, if you ask yeah. them, they'd probably say, oh yeah, she's doing great. She's very organized. So she's probably very on top where um, Dr. Crosby, yeah, he's totally on top of his finances because he's he's organized he's obviously very successful you know he's doing all of these things and so it helps people recognize again their own strengths and when we can get people to recognize their own strengths and get them to recognize what they can do either more of or differently and it's their own idea then they're going to be more likely to actually implement it And so, you know, all those plans that we give as financial advisors that then go home with our clients and get tucked into a drawer or saved on the computer, but never to be looked at again until the next time you meet with them. (laughs) And you're like, oh, did you do any of these things? Oh, no, I did not do any of these things. Sometimes it's because they weren't ready to do it. You know, thinking about stages of change. Um, sometimes it didn't, it's not something that fit into their life at that point in time, or they didn't really feel confident in doing it. And that's because we didn't make space for that when we are working with our clients. Um, and so then the, the third thing that I think is really important to this approach is helping clients think about what is it that they can do and really thinking about that from, from a small steps perspective. Like what's one small thing that you can do today to get you to start if you know, if you need to increase your savings or whatever, um, what's one small thing that you can do today that will help you work towards that goal? And so you get them to brainstorm what it is that they're doing. Well, maybe I'm, I'm not going to, maybe I'm not going to get on Amazon today. Maybe I am. I'm going to forgo that that latte that I normally get, and maybe when I go out with my friends, I'm going to get water instead. And so just any any small thing, because when clients start recognizing they can do something to contribute to the process and they're going to have more buy-in to the process and they are going to um, feel more empowered to, to do it. And so um, this is one thing we're talking about with um, some of our service providers is, you know, when you're when you're taking, of course, these are brand new people working with, with clients. And so they want to fix everything. And so when you're, when you're taking more responsibility than your client is, then you're taking your client's power away from them to actually do the things that are, that are good for them. They might be hard, but you've taken any power away from them to actually do those things um, and to contribute to their own successes. 
So there, there's so much that I love about this solution focused piece. Like studies have shown that that people's number one fear when they go to see a financial professional is effectively being judged and condescended to. And I think honestly, many times we fulfill those fears in a very real way. Uh, and I think f- in some respects, behavioral finance has been has been part of the problem and not part of the solution because we've sort of cataloged all these ways that people deviate from rationality and all the silly things they do. And that's not especially helpful for anyone, especially someone uh, in a room where there's a profound profound power differential and where they're already scared of being, of being condescended to or judged. I love that even if you're that six out of 10, you're the five out of 10, that's still something. And that's something we can work with diagnosing, finding those strengths, capitalizing on those strengths, making it positive, making it proactive, making it incremental. I think all of that empowers the client and it just feels so different. You know, another piece I want to pick up on, and I was just really nodding sort of furiously to internally, when you talked about goals, I find when I talk to people about their financial goals, it's usually some variant of be rich, (laughs) you know, whatever that means, be rich, be rich, have more than I have today or retire with, again, sort of very loose, um, you know, loose boundaries around what that means. You've done some work around goal setting and sort of improving the goal setting process. How can we get people uh, to be a little bit more thoughtful about the goal setting process from what you've, what you've found? Yeah. So the segue is very nicely because we utilize the solution focus approach and helping people to set those goals. And so when they would leave, interestingly enough, this is what we found is that their financial anxiety was reduced, significantly mm-hmm. reduced. Um, their financial stress was significantly reduced, their financial well-being increased. And um, they were actually more likely to want to refer someone to a financial professional. Mm. So it's hard to say. What we can't say is what about the specific questions that we asked because we were using kind of this template. I called it a guide because it wasn't like you were reading every every single word. You kind of made it your own, but you were asking in the spirit and you were asking some version of this solution question, solution focus question that was on this paper. So what we can't say is what exactly about that approach worked. We just know that we did those three things that we talked about. We did best hopes. How are those hopes going to be realized? We did scaling questions and we did small steps. Um, And we asked a couple other questions um, that were in alignment with those as well. But that's what we did. And so clients were able to create those goals and, and left a 20 to 30 minute after 20 to 30 minutes feeling like, hey, this has really reduced my anxiety. And maybe it was anxiety about going to a professional um, Mm -hmm. and what I thought that experience would be like. And we also did this with um, clients that were from all different walks. So from lower income to higher income to lower net worth to higher net worth. Um, So there was a real mix of people that were in here. Um, We were out of university and so. There were some students um, and and family student or students that were you know family clients, um, but then there were a lot of non-family clients as well. 
And so, yeah, it was it, it's something about the way in which that was framing, like you talked about that non-judgmental, it's very empowering, um, really helped clients to more clearly visualize what their goals were and articulate those goals. But at the same time, they left having, you know, feeling a major difference in in themselves. So does does the miracle state become sort of the proxy for the goal? And then the delta yeah. between the current state and the miracle state gives you a sense of those first incremental steps to take? Is that do I have that right? Yes, exactly. So I'm sorry if I <laughs> jumped over that, but yes, yeah. So the miracle question is really all about even when you're utilizing it in the mental health field. Um, you're utilizing it as a way in which you're helping clients to create goals. And so that's why it takes some time. If you're using the miracle question and you're asking it in, in the way that it was really intended, that's why it takes so long. Because you're going from like, you know, you wake up and, you know, what, how, how are you going to know the shift happened? So we're looking at like what's internally happening to you. Um, how is that different? And then, you know, what are some things around you that's going to have shifted as a result of you being different? And so when we ask about, okay, shifts in in financial situation, then then they're also able to think about, okay, how how would my life be different? And so they might actually want to respond with, uh, well, I would have won the lottery or, you know, some sort of or inherit a whole lot of money from my long lost uncle. <laughs> yeah. But those are unrealistic. And so those happen in mental health too. And so we just have to be prepared. Like, how do you respond to unrealistic ideations like that? And and there are mechanisms in which you deal, you deal with that. But the best hopes also replaces that miracle question in a little shorter version of it but the idea is like what are your best hopes what would that look like and you have to really dig and help clients really get a picture of themselves of what they would feel like what they would be acting like what they would and then when you're able to get like okay I'm going to feel less stressed I'm going to be present with my family and I'm going to know these things because maybe I'm at home more or maybe, you know, maybe I um, I have enough money every 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 week where I have I'm being able to put a, aside so much. Um, and so they can articulate those. But that that comes also as part of some of that brainstorming, those brainstorming pieces of how they can contribute to the solution as well. Yeah, it's so incredible to me. It will never cease to amaze me how a relatively simple thing can have such a profound positive impact. I mean, for the financial professionals listening to this, if you could if you could reduce anxiety and incre increase your referability in a 20-minute intervention that's easy as can be. I mean, like why why would you not? It's the power of some of these things. It's it's if we just take the time and sort of have the eyes to see their value. We don't have tons of time left, but I am not going to let you get out of here without talking to me about fuzzy trace theory. So <laughs> I read this and I have, I got to say, I have never heard of this. You wrote a paper last year that took a really interesting qualitative approach to measuring risk tolerance. I've just been working on a big risk tolerance project at Orion, so it's very top of mind. You have to tell us about fuzzy trace theory and its relationship to risk tolerance. Yeah. Okay. So I have to preface this to all of your listeners. I, I said that to you as well. But 
I am not a risk expert by any means. That is not my area. But this actually, this is a project that came uh, to me, and I'm so excited to be a part of this project um, by a couple of people who were my students at the time. And so actually all the people on the paper were were a student of mine at some point. And um, it started while we were at Kansas State and Megan Lertz actually is the one who brought it and said, will you work with us on this? And I said, okay, I don't really do risk. And she's like, well, we're really interested in like qualitative. I'm like, but we don't know anything. About it. So I'm like, okay, that's, I, I can help there. Let's do, yeah. we can do some mixed methods and that would be really, really cool. And so we, that's how we designed the study is mixed methods. And I think that's just like a huge contribution to some of the risk literature that that's out there, at least what I'm aware of, um, that really takes a little bit deeper dive um, in terms of why we might be seeing what we what we see. But she said, I want to use this theory called fuzzy trace theory. And I'm pretty for sure my reaction was just like yours. I started <laughs> laughing. <laughs> like, what is this theory? And what are you talking about? And so it is really a psycholinguistic theory um, of risky decision making mm-hmm. um, by uh, that's developed by uh, Dr. Reina. And she was a student of Kahneman's, actually. And so she actually developed this um, with, you know, having him as a mentor. Um, but then utilizing it to say that, okay, we have perceptions and um, our vision of risk is like what the like the numbers are, like the numerical pieces. And then we have our values, like our personal values that we bring to the table. And then this gist and the gist is really like our short. The, my best way to describe it is like our the shortcuts that our brain makes to make us make sense of things. Mm-hmm. And so in the study, we looked at risk and um, in terms of especially in the qualitative part and just really found that, you know, the way in which clients perceive risk is really different than we tend to view risk as professionals and as mm. scholars. Um, so clients aren't really looking at risk from a probability standpoint, mm-hmm. like we might be thinking about it um, or a or rational capacity standpoint. Yeah. They're, it's very laden with our values or their values, I should say, um, clients' values in terms of how they're interpreting what risk looks like. And so it's just a really different um, way in which we looked um, at that, um, but but super interesting. And so if you wanted to read more about it, it's in the financial planning review. Given, you know, given that we have this sort of mandate and this need to, to quantify risk at some level to give people an appropriate asset allocation. And I mean, I have observed it. I believe you. Like, I, I know that they think about these things in different ways. How do we sort of bridge that divide? If we if we have this sort of duty and this need to put some sort of computational end on it to to create a sensible portfolio, but then that's not very reflective of perhaps their behavior or their experience of risk, how how do we kind of start to to bridge that gap? Yeah, I think we just have to ask more questions and Mm -hmm. we need to follow up with qualitative questions or open-ended questions. Um, So, you know, 
you give them your risk assessment that you're getting your getting this great numerical score. You can even ask, you know, follow-up questions from that specific assessment that you're utilizing. But some common questions that you could ask is, you know, like when you think about risk, you know, what comes to mind? Mm. Or when you think about financial risk and your goals, what what concerns you the most and why? Mm. So just digging in a little bit deeper to really start understanding what does that number actually mean to them? Like, how are they thinking about this particular assessment? And when they're thinking about risk, like what context are they thinking about it in? Mm-hmm. They've had a really bad experience, like lost all their money in the, you know, in the stock market or they were in, in the housing crisis. That's probably had a pretty heavy way in which they now perceive risk um, that might be different than than what it was before. So that those experiences are really huge in terms of how people perceive risk, which is why maybe what they think and how they behave might not seem to be congruent. But if you can fill in what that gap is, then that starts to make a whole lot more sense in terms of like, Oh, they say that they're really, you know, they have a really high risk tolerance, but they don't behave that way when the stock market takes a a little dip. They they become really anxious and stressed. So just starting to get an understanding of what, what that means and what that looks like, you know, asking about those experiences. So like, tell me about a time when you've been considering taking a financial risk. What was that like for you? Um, what made the situation risky or how did you respond to financial risk? Um, so, so tell me about that. Tell, just tell me more, tell, explain, you know, what, what it is or how you responded to this particular item that might look really incongruent, you know, num- you know, how they responded to it in terms of others. Yeah. Um, I, I, th- I think it's such important research because we can't be satisfied with the results of a you know, especially some of these very cursory RTQs that give us, um, you know, that that perhaps give us some some basic insights into how to allocate their assets, but perhaps give us very little insight to their emotional state uh, or to their behavior or how they think about risk in a practical way. Um, I could talk to you about this for another hour, uh, but and the, I, I do have to jump to another meeting. So, but before we go, though, just want to say thank you. Uh, thank you for your foresight. Thank you for your vision and, and all the work that you've done to, to lay the groundwork for financial therapy becoming uh, what it is today. If people want to read the work that you're proud of, where can people, uh, where can people find your work and, and learn more about your thinking? Sure. Yeah. So probably the best way to find me is either on LinkedIn. Or you just go Christy Archuleta and you will find me at the University of Georgia or on our university faculty site. So they have a list of publications like we're all supposed to be putting up there and you can go find those. Most of them are probably accessible via Google Scholar. Yes. Perfect. Dr. Christy, thank you again for joining us today and keep keep going. All right. Thank you so much. This was fun. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com.
All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.